Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, I'm Robert Gluck, and I'm going to be reading from my last book of book of stories called Denny Smith. The story I'm reading is the second in a series of three stories, and they are called Forced Stories, and they're about fathers and theft. And I guess the overall moral of these stories is that a son has to steal what already belongs to him. The plot of this stolen from a Richard Scarry video, which I saw about a thousand times with my son, about a bananas gorilla, and he is looking for some bananas. So that's the plot of the video, and this story follows it pretty closely. Conviction. I'm removing an oak leaf hydrangea from a corner in my garden. Wrong plant, wrong place. Gardening is lovely, of course, but I perform the actual activity as I do other chores. I work like a demon, like my dad, furious and overwhelmed. Like him, I suffer fits of despairing rage during the odd moment. I do an impossibly thorough job. Somebody's got to keep this beauty going. Then I don't return until the garden's a mess. I don't have the patience to be gently continuous, like Ed was, like good weather, like rich soil. I'm aware of my faults, but not all of them. Sometimes circumstances expose a failing, some brand of dishonesty, for example. Impatience is like a lie, lying to what? Time itself. So time takes its revenge. I jam the blade of my shovel in the dirt, rocking the bush with one hand. I'm pleasantly awed by the earthworms, some of them a foot long, fat and happy in the unconscious. I try not to cut them in half. I wonder if the body of my old dog Lily makes them healthy. I hope to find a tidy root ball, but some idiot planted the hydrangea above a sheet of plastic. Why? So the roots spread outward. I try to dislodge them, but the roots are strong and finally I have to sever them. I don't take the time to find my pruning shears. A sharp cut would be better for the plant. I just smash the roots with the blade of my shovel. Then I stand on the blade, sinking it deep beneath the hydrangea, and pry the plant upwards using dirt for leverage. The bush trembles. I bear down hard until the crack of splitting wood makes me jump. My shovel has snapped almost in half. It was a good shovel an old one with a wooden shaft. I look in the garage for another shovel. God only knows what's in there. I find a metal spoon and try clearing away dirt from under the plant. Moisture seeps through the knees of my jeans as I punch the spoon into the soil. But the task is too big for a spoon. Dirt cakes my nails. My hands and jeans are muddy. I have to go to a store. Which store? Which store? Tuggies, I guess, on 24th Street. They have everything there. Parking is too difficult. I'll walk, so I just leave the bush where it is. 
I fight an impulse to go upstairs and lie down. I'm already drawing the blanket over my chest. The climbing roses rain a few dewdrops when I slam the garden door behind me. I walk as though I'm still doing chores, speeding in mild fury. The sky is intense, dull white. The smell of bread from the bakery is appeasing. I realize that I'm the idiot who left the piece of plastic under the hydrangea. Who else? I was probably in a hurry. Tuggy is sweeping the sidewalk in front of his store in slow motion. I like Tuggy's, even the smell. The nice young man who greets me has known me so long that he asks how Ed and Lily are. I remind him of Lily's death. I am not ready to bury Ed in casual conversation. I need a shovel. I can't understand with a nice young man, well, he's as old as I am, that is, he used to be young, and the old man, his father, I imagine, tell me they have no shovels. Spades, yes. I handle a spade, trying to imagine digging up my hydrangea with it. I ask, do you have any shovels? If we start again, the outcome might be different. Tuggy speaks to a child, the words slow and heavy. Sorry, Bob, I'm all out of shovels today. Come back tomorrow. He suggests a garden store down the street, a store that irritates me. Flower Express used to be owned by a German. One day I complained that the buds of the dozen roses he sold me had all keeled over before they bloomed. He puffed out his chest and shouted, I have been in the flower business aboard twenty year, as though that proved something about my roses. Apparently I will never forget that. I go to Flower Express anyway. The German died of AIDS a few years ago, and the Asian woman who runs the store honors his memory with a little shrine of photos and flowers above the counter. So there he is. I can't find a shovel anywhere today. On the way home, I still walk furiously. I stop at a garage sale, but no, no shovels. Should I get in my car and drive somewhere, somewhere to buy a shovel? How is my hydrangea faring, tilted at a strange angle, its roots harmed and exposed? Should I eat first? Should I walk on Jersey or 25th? Faced with more than one decision, I'm crushed by horniness, as though lust were the only way to keep this faltering self organized. I can't rid myself of excitement by myself, yet relation to others falls away as though it never existed. I start trudging up the hill on Clipper, I cruise a slender man in a brown uniform. I'm glaring at him. He's popping letters in someone's mailbox. Hey, Bob, how you doing? It's George the mailman. I have a surge of affection for George. I was in so much turmoil that I used myself up. Now sweetness enters alone on the empty stage. George's contentment makes him almost handsome his big, placid eyes. I met his wife and kids. Hey, Bob, I haven't seen you in a while. It's reassuring, 
almost exotic to talk with someone who seems to like his job. I give him Christmas gifts in appreciation, and I think he is touched by that. I pass George's truck. The back doors are open, and what do I see wrapped in brown paper and hemp twine? There's no one around, and I feel the shovel is my shovel, my shovel, mine. If I untie the string and tear the paper off, who will know it isn't? So I grab the shovel with a long gorilla arm. It's not heavy, but suddenly I am exposed. That is, I'm standing at the bottom of the hill with this big package in my hand, and ahead there's a long block of plain daylight. Somewhere Glenn Miller's band plays in the mood. George is just leaving a house, climbing down the steps, and I slide to the far side of his truck. If I keep the open door between us, I can make myself into a blind spot. I back up the street diagonally with the shovel close to my side. I can see George's legs. He must be gazing into the truck, and of course he misses the shovel. He knows it's supposed to be there. He shuts the door as though to protect what's left of the mail and looks around, scratching under his cap. When he catches sight of me, he waves his hand above his head, just a friendly yoo-hoo, and I start jigging backwards. He can't see that I have the shovel. That's possible. He walks toward me up the hill, slow from uncertainty. When he starts jogging, I turn and run. What else can I do? I hold the shovel above my head like a spear. Running right in front of me is a patch of shadow to hide in. George is in better shape than I, all that mail he delivers while I unravel at my desk. Clomp, clomp, the steady clomp of his shoes. I look back at George, and somehow I can see his eye turned up wildly, the white eye of a foaming horse. I shove off on one foot up through the air, slowly landing as my other foot shoves off and floats astride long and slow. Even though I'm running, my senses go backwards. I'm paddling a raft, and George drives a powerboat. I'm coasting on a bike while George straddles a motorcycle. I'm skimming up my front steps, laughing and scrambling for the key. I turn back and become a camera as I pan the scene. George is not as close as I thought. The morning fog has burned off. The cotoneaster makes me squint. Its leaves are shining mirrors, beads of light, ping-pong on strands of spiderweb between the branches of the old prune-plum. Everything sways and yet is still. I feel a weird, exalted pressure to hold this moment aloft. Then I'm inside, out of the daylight, I race up the stairs, piss in the bathroom, fly through the kitchen and down into the back garden so there's nobody home. I'm desperate to use the shovel. I tear the wrapping off. It's an excellent shovel with a thick steel handle and a heavy oak shaft and a metal blade I can see my face in, red from exertion and need. I turn the blade over, made in Canada, the earth melts under its edge. My dog Lily, buried below the hydrangea, was friends with George. I lift the bush out, and then I hear the knock. A policeman lets himself in, as though he unzipped the wall. Search warrants do not apply to gardens. 
He's a big, florid, blousy blonde. It's Officer Jim. I recognize him from the time my car was stolen. Officer Jim took my report at my kitchen table, his crinkled yellow hair and his jowls. He drawled. You'd be surprised how many men are turned on by officers of the law. He asked to use the bathroom. The term turned on remained in my kitchen. Turned on seemed strangely antique, and I wondered if I still said turned on in my bedroom. Officer Jim pissed without restraint, the door wide open, handcuffs and gun dangling and he held his ground by my toilet. I felt some resentment. He's probably had a lot of success, I reasoned. I would be one more pair of lips dangling from his crotch. Officer Jim was right. Somebody wanted to go down on this big yellow dog, but not me, but somebody. I lingered in the kitchen, transfixed by indecision. The scenario was so recognizable that somewhere, some Bob was already on his knees, wondering if all fantasies support the familiar and repel the unknown. Finally, I heard Officer Jim's heavy tread on the stairs. He left in a huff without saying goodbye. Now here he is. Over his shoulder, George's wheezing and suffering face appears and I can hear Officer Jim's snot wheezing. He growls, I'm taking you in, Bob. You won't be stealing any shovels for quite a while. I think it's a toy city, the merchant, the postman, the cop on the beat. Experience is an unbelievable god, though easy to worship. Steve, my lawyer, has red inflamed lips. I wonder if they hurt. When we go to lunch, he blankets his fettuccine with black pepper. The cappuccino freezes we have for dessert are disappointing, just scoops of powder blended with milk. Would you prefer mocha strawberry? Steve asks. There's also something artificial about Steve. I wear a blue shark skin suit to my trial. The evidence is submitted. The shovel is exhibited. Steve puts a little lie in everything, but suddenly I see some truth. Look at the shovel, I cry. It's mine. The court is appalled. I have presented my own nothingness to the law. The judge averts his face. He's confused by emotion other than gratitude. And Steve collapses in his chair, strings cut. It's mine. It's mine, as though saying makes it so. I'm afraid they are taking my shovel away. They already have. In fact, it states evidence against me. Poor George takes the stand. He can't meet my eye, and he wrings his hands as though he's on trial when Steve cross-examines him. George feels more anguish than I do. That makes me sad. I discover what is artificial about Steve. He moves his eyes as though a B-movie director were commanding him. Broad leaf shapes cover his tie. They illustrate our health. The impassive court recorder wears a turtleneck and a checked blazer. The broad ceiling light makes soft shadows. The elderly judge 
is so sensitive that his job must be very trying. He pours a glass of water from the chrome pitcher on his desk and offers it to George, who drinks gratefully. Steve glares at George and barks, Did Mr. Gluck intend to steal the shovel? George endures like the Virgin Mary, full of tender sorrow. The prosecution cries, Objection, calls for speculation. The judge, You may restate your question. Steve, To the best of your knowledge, is Mr. Gluck an honest man? Officer Jim rereads his report in a bored voice, then goes back to work. The judge asks me to explain myself. He wants to know who I am. His body is so lanky he seems to have two waists, and his simple face is painful to see because of its unguarded kindness. Steve beams encouragement as though I were climbing a jungle gym. It's exasperating to be involved with an overenthusiastic person. The heavy oak door swings open and Steve's assistant dashes up the aisle. He has the dreamy eyes of a lemur. Steve is so happy to see him that they actually collide and struggle. Their bodies want to occupy the same space. Steve requests five minutes, then he has something new. Your Honor, I wish to submit Exhibit 2, the paper that wrapped the shovel, and Exhibit 3, a letter found with the paper. The prosecutor starts to protest. After a side-bench conference, the judge sits back, a finger supporting his chin. Let the record show. Steve offers the balled-up brown paper and a folded sheet of white paper to the bailiff. I'm twisting inside, caught in the maw of something smaller than myself. Can't we get on with it? The judge and I share a long look. Does he think Steve's lips are odd? I pin my hopes on the judge. I'm also a kind person, and I feel kindness unites us. On the brown paper there is a return address. As though this were the trial of the century, Steve backs away from the bench so he can stride forward when he proclaims that the address belongs to my parents in Escondido and the letter is from my father. What does the startling evidence say? Dear Bob, here is a shovel. Love, Dad. I push down my tears. That's the first time he used the word love. Could I enlarge it into a paternal blessing? My father has the same kind of loyalty to me as the earth does. He will accept me without acknowledgement. Could I endure his blessing? I ponder that collapse of infrastructure. In Steve's closing remarks, he throws his arms out and cries, Your Honor, my client is the most innocent man in this courtroom. The court cracks up, the judge guffaws, and even Steve can't suppress a grin. He says, I rest my case. The silver stripe in my racing shoe makes me feel guilty, as though sin is showing. I mentally submit to the judgment of the court and to the long, simple face of the judge. Did George know it was my shovel all along? Are my other relationships false? My father may have no inner resources, but what are mine? Does redemption exist outside fiction?' 
outside the law? When did we first know about the camps? My experience may be allegorical, but of what? I'm at a crossroads. If I'm acquitted, I need to find a way to be my father's son, to address the years of his life and the fact of our connection. If I begin such a task, when can I ever stop? The prosecutor and the judge huddle while the judge unconsciously fondles his files. He's like the director of the penitentiary, and Maurice Blanchot's The Idol. He has a noble cultivation and my best interest at heart. I feel a pang of gratitude for the care he showered on my case, the people versus me. He raises his hands, rheumatoid fingers on the bias. The verdict unrolls from his mouth. Although the shovel belongs to me, that does not mitigate the fact that I stole it from a postal employee. My federal offense compounded by disrespect for an officer of the law. For Officer Jim, I wonder? The judge puts his glasses on, then holds them out to mark his words to the full extent of the law. My crime carries a maximum sentence of seven years, which the judge, for my own good, intends to make his ruling. How strange. I'm looking through a rain-splattered lens. What is this? Tears. Steve says, Thanks, Bob. It's been fun, and smacks his red lips. Justice exalts. The daydream ends. As my blurred white face shrinks, in the paddy wagon window. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.